0: public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
1: Welcome to the local edition news and information, keeping you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole, but not for long, I'm going to hand things over to Bill Williams in just a moment for the Kingfisher Project. Bill's with us here live in the studio, and that's a good thing because uh, on Thursday, just before the holiday weekend, Thursday was International Overdose Awareness Day, and that occasion was marked in Sullivan County uh, by a vigil Thursday evening. Officials were there and spoke. Community came out and gathered and also spoke, and uh, Bill Williams was there. So let's get a quick report before we get the Kingfisher Project started. Bill. What what was it like on Thursday night? Well, I
0: think the first thing we should say is that one of the uh, organizers, one of the committee, was our very own Kingfisher Project's very own Julie Pizal. Julie helped put it together, uh, along with a lot of other people. Uh, and there were there were exhibits, there were tables, and there were tables with exhibits, with handouts, information, uh, including some past guests of ours, Catholic Charities, and Hope Not Handcuffs,
1: and a Kingfisher Project table. What's the, well, if you could sum it up, like what, what, what stands out to you about this event or was there, a, whether it was an official theme or just what you noticed people talking more about this year than perhaps in past years?
0: Um, I, th- I think the thing that stood out to me was the number of politicians, police officials, emergency officials that all seemed to be on the same page. People seem to realize we've got to do something, we've got to get going. Um, probably because it was in a brochure that they handed out, but it was also mentioned. Sullivan County holds the highest rate of overdose per capita in New York State. That includes New York City. Highest dose per capita in New York State. So it was also recently designated as a high-intensity drug trafficking area. What that means is that there will be federal funds designated to help Sullivan County combat all the drug trafficking that goes on
1: in our neighborhoods. Right. And that's something we've been covering right along here, both on the Kingfisher Project and, you know, on the local edition yeah. to that designation. Of course, you have something like, like a designation of a high, high intensity drug trafficking area. Boy, that sounds like legally speak for like a major, uh, uh, law enforcement crackdown. But it seems like the more and more the, the emphasis in general out there, you're hearing people talk about things such as, uh, harm reduction, such as options besides the uh, carceral system for those who are using, is that did that continue at this event? where you continue? Oh, absolutely. To see signs of that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. The uh, Liberty Police Chief uh, spoke, and of course, he spoke about the, the police department's relationship with hope, not handcuffs. That one of the things he said was, you know, when your children, they, we tell children if they see a problem, if they have a problem, go to tell a policeman if you need help. And we should say the same thing to people with addiction problems, that they can feel safe going to the police station, asking the police to help them get, get some help, yeah. get some treatment.
1: All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for giving us that update and uh, you know, being our eyes on the ground at that event. And uh, now without further ado, let's, let's get the Kingfisher Project started here on the local edition.
0: Thanks, Jason. There's one other thing I should have mentioned, and that is at one point they asked of the people that were there, they asked people to stand up uh, if they were in recovery. And I was seated in the midst of a bunch of people. Suddenly everybody around me was standing up, and that was really good news to see the number of people that were in recovery, Uh, which is a nice segue to our our guest tonight. My guest today tonight is Mary Beth O'Connor whose new book, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction, tells her remarkable recovery story. Welcome, Mary Beth. Can you hear me?
2: I can hear you. Thanks for having me. good.
0: Sorry. My my fault. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Mary Beth is joining us. You're in California right now, are you not?
2: Yeah, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Yeah. Um... I just, in preparation for the show, I read, I read the book, your book, again for a, a, a second time. So, I'd, a, I'd know what I was talking about, but b, just, to, just to try to get a, a clear understanding of your whole story. What, what two things impressed me? One is the the, the trauma. When we say trauma, I mean the way you were treated as a child growing up was a combination of. Abuse and nobody paying attention to you at all uh and then that seemed to have a sort of a ripple effect, so that later in life situations reoccurred that almost mimicked or or in some ways reflected upon early treatment that you somehow got used to. Do I summarize that fairly?
2: I think that's right. I mean, a a lot of people who suffer trauma, it's sort of, it's a norm. Uh, And so there are a couple things that happens. One is that it doesn't seem as outrageous to us if more violence happens. It's sort of more within our normal experience. But also, our ability to sort of detect risk, for me, it went... From you know being hyper aroused and noticing if for example, a man stood behind me in an elevator to being oblivious it 's just i didn 't have a balanced sense of where the true risks were, and I had a distorted perception of what was normal and that 's what happens for a lot of us
0: um, when one of the things you you talked about was um When you were in school, when you were, I guess, in in high school, there was actually a smoking area for students outside. Uh, But as you described the the teachers and guidance counselors, I was struck by, I guess that's because I'm a former teacher, but I was struck by how little attention they paid to what students were doing. Today, if if we saw some of the things or heard about some of the things that were happening to students, we'd be obligated to report it. Um, it doesn't sound like any of that happened in when you were growing up.
2: No, well, it was the seventies, and so I'm sure a lot of younger people find it odd that we had an actual patio where we were allowed to smoke cigarettes. But there was a lot of smoking of of marijuana, you know, on the patio as well. And so the teachers and Snap just basically avoided the patio area. They would they would go in the other door, so they didn't have to walk through and and sort of acknowledge it or deal with it. But it really was pretty much mostly just people smoking um, weed. It wasn't usually anything more than that.
0: Uh, any chance teachers were going in another door and smoking on their smoking weed on the other side of the school?
2: <laughs> well, there were always rumors about a couple of teachers, but of course you never knew. I mean, it's not as if we had accurate information. It was more based on did they have long hair or did they seem cool or did they ride a motorcycle? <laughs> yeah. What
0: would what would you? Well, I I think I know the answer, but what would your advice be for people that are in, in abusive situations now?
2: I mean, I do think that it's important to pay attention to what's going on in those teenage years. Sometimes I'm asked, what's the number one thing we could do to reduce the substance use disorder rate in America? And my answer to that is always mental health treatment for children, right? Because the truth is that having uh, abuse in your family, abuse around you, particularly if it's repetitive, Uh, does really increase your odds of developing a substance use disorder. But also, of course, you know, I had PTSD and I didn't know it. Depression and anxiety are common. And so I do think it's important for uh, the adults around the children to try to notice if there are any signs that there's a problem and if there is to address it as promptly as possible, because that will help reduce their risk going forward.
0: Uh, You had... I mean, you are one bright lady. I've, re- I've read your book, but I've also, the story that you tell, uh, your intelligence both got you through stuff, but in some ways also got you into trouble. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, definitely my one positive experience when I was a child was school. I mean, that's where I got positive attention. I was really seen. As you mentioned, I wasn't seen at home. It wasn't just the abuse. It was sort of the emotional neglect. But in school, I was treated as something special, and so that was my happy place, and that was helpful. And it also was helpful in my recovery, because when I got sober, I did have a college degree. I had a degree from Berkeley. I had worked my way you know, down the corporate ladder into a low-end job, and I had to start from there, but it was advantageous in the long run that I had the education behind me. Um, but you know, being smart, having an education doesn't really make us immune to... um, other things that are going on in our lives or to the other risks of developing the anxiety or um, addiction that, like I did.
0: Yeah, it would seem to me, it's almost a, well, it's a cautionary tale that as as smart as you were um, after college, during and after college, uh, you still wound up in some really dangerous situations.
2: Yes. I mean, you know, I moved in with an abusive boyfriend when I was in college, and I knew he was abusive before I moved in with him. And that's something I thought a lot about when I was working on my memoir. But, you know, it just, to me, it wasn't that bad. And there was also sort of a a bond with him because he came from abusive household. And so I felt like I understood him and we were sort of two of a kind, peas in a pod. And so that was why I made that choice. But in the end, I I did leave, but in the meantime, there were violent episodes, which just sort of reinforced my stress, my anxiety, um, and my other mental health issues.
0: Um, People talk about uh, a drug of choice I I've been thinking about that. It seems to me that people people don't it's not like you go to the supermarket and you walk down the aisle and say oh I'll have one of those. <laughs> um that that somehow there's a kind of a lock and key uh thing where people wind up using the drug that fits their emotional state their mental illness that there's a somehow the drug and the and the personality come together. Does that make any sense to you?
2: Uh, you're right, I thought about this a lot when I was writing the book and when I first got sober because I was always sort of high energy, considered high strong verbal, and yet, it wasn't the opiates that attracted me. I mean, I did, you know, downers, pills. I've done heroin. It just didn't really appeal to me the way that methamphetamine did, which is interesting because I was already high energy to start with. But for me, it was a clear choice. Once I was exposed to meth, um, that really was something that I pursued. And in, in the long run, I stopped doing most other drugs because meth was my, my, my focus, on the other hand, I have, you know, known people who are a little bit more um, ampidextrous isn't quite the right word, but <laughs> less committed to one drug than I was. Some people go back and forth depending on what's available. So it does depend on the person. But why it was the biological or chemical fit for me, I'm not sure, but that's what it felt like. Once I was exposed to meth, that's what I wanted. I wanted it much more than anything else.
0: Um, are you suffering any after effects from I mean, you use meth for a long, a lot of meth for a lot of time. Uh, Do you suffer any after effects from it now?
2: No. I mean, a couple things about that. One is that I didn't know it at the time. But the reality is I learned in recovery, uh, especially the last 10 years, that For people who use methamphetamine in the long run and particularly those who develop a lot of psychosis from it because you can have psychotic symptoms from meth, especially when you're staying up for days, Um, some people actually don't get over those psychotic symptoms ever, or it can take a long time. For me, I did have some uh, psychosis when I was using meth sometimes, but I wasn't on the, on the higher end of that spectrum compared to other people. And then the other thing is that a lot of the drug-borne diseases, because I shot meth for most of the time that I use it, I shot meth. And so you can get, you know, HIV, hep C, and other blood diseases, but I used the needle exchange for the last few years uh, of my using, And that was probably one of the reasons that when I got sober, I didn't have any long term medical repercussions from it.
0: Um, And you don't need me to tell you, but I'm sure you've heard a number of times that you nonetheless you've dodged a bullet.
2: I dodged a bullet in a lot of ways. I mean, I dodged a bullet from a lot of different violent episodes. You know, I was kidnapped and and raped, and I could have died then. I could have died at home. I could have died with boyfriends. I went people, you know, getting in cars alone with people I barely knew. And then on top of that, definitely, you know, I had overdoses from meth. I just didn't ever have one bad enough to push me to the hospital.
0: Um, Your sister, who grew up, and you're, you're very close, I believe about 20 months apart, is that right? Yes. Uh, and she, as you describe it in the book, has her own problems, and it's interesting to me that I'm back again on drug of choice. It seems like her drug of choice is heroin under somewhat similar circumstances.
2: Yeah, it was her preferred drug, although she would use different drugs more frequently than I did. Um, and she is sober now. It's just that it took her longer to get there than I did. But but on the other hand, we also were very different personalities. I, I mean, Cindy, she was always more low-key than I was, you know, a different energy level. Um, But why I've thought about my friends is there's sort of a personality that pushes you to one drug or another, and as far as I can tell, there's no pattern, and I've never seen any studies that show a pattern.
0: Um, Let's talk about your recovery a little bit because it seems to me that it's your own willpower, your own strong will that had a lot to do with it, but also your willingness to investigate and to Stand up for yourself recovery-wise, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah,
2: I, I mean, when I went into rehab, um, and this is in the in the early 90s, I was only offered 12 steps, right, which is Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all of the anonymouses, and that was not the right fit for me for multiple reasons, including I don't believe in a higher power, I didn't agree I was powerless, I wasn't going to turn over my will in my life. It's a good fit for many, but it wasn't for me, and so I had to go out and find other options, which did exist, and definitely a lot exists today, but in the long when what I really did was sort of take control of my recovery. So I I read all the books, all the 12-step books, the books for women for sobriety and what today would be life ring and what today would be smart. And I just, I read all of them and attended meetings and was constantly looking and um, trying to find ideas that I could use. So I was just sort of actively pursuing different what I viewed as suggestions, and then filtering them. Do I think that I can apply this? Do I think this will help me? And I built up a plan that worked for me, and then over time I adjusted it. What do I need now? Where am I now? What What new goals can I set now? What new plans? And it turned out that doing that actually sort of built up my my competence and my confidence to tackle the other areas of my life because it ended up being the same skill set, right? Keep your ears and your mind open, read, think, analyze, set goals, and set a plan and carry it out.
0: Now, you did that yourself on the one hand, but I, you did have help along the way, I, am I correct? With different groups and different people helping you form opinions and do the research and. and just discuss different ways about going going about your recovery.
2: Yeah, I mean, I went to meetings, a lot of meetings of the various programs. I would do different combinations of them for especially the first 18 months. And I also did um, therapy, right? I, I found a, a therapist who specialized in trauma and who also had some uh, expertise in substance use. So... One of the things I do emphasize is that sort of a self-empowered recovery, which is what it's called, what I did, self-empowered doesn't have to mean alone. It just means you're the decision maker. But reaching out for the um, supports that you need or the professional help that you need, that's part of self-empowered recovery. And that's what I did.
0: Um, and you were in where, in, where were you located for most of your recovery?
2: In the Bay Area, I came. You know, I grew up in Central Jersey, but I came to California. I graduated from Berkeley, and I just never left. <laughs>
0: right, right. Uh, the, the reason I ask that question is we're um, in a rural. I'm talking to you from a more rural area, and uh, I'm wondering what suggestions you might have for people that are interested in finding their own way, finding their own recovery, uh, where they don't have. We don't have quite as much access to resources. At hand um, the same the way that you might have had in the Bay area,
2: that's true, although um, remember it was before the internet when I got sober, right, and so today, the alternative programs that I use, so for example, Life rank secular recovery, which i'm on the board for um, she recovers i'm on the board, women for sobriety, smart. All, recovery Dharma, the options are all available on the internet today. So even if you don't have meetings face to face in your community, you can attend meetings online and you can, of course, you know, order the books, read the material, and get a lot of information on the websites. So even in it, really today a rural community has a better opportunity to participate in other options than they did when I got sober.
0: Um, if you're going to punch if you were going to start researching and do one 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 search to begin helping yourself uh, now online, what what would you look for first? What what would be the first thing you would type in?
2: Well, if I was looking for peer support, and that's you know what the meetings I've talked about, I would definitely take a look at what I what are really the six largest, and that would be twelve steps, so AA or NA, depending. Um, I would look at LifeRing, I would look at She Recovers, Smart Dharma, and Women for Sobriety, and I would look at their philosophy because the philosophies vary, but the meeting formats also vary. And so I would look and see what the meeting formats are. For example, 12-step meetings usually have a speaker who talks for 20 minutes or more of the hour, whereas in Life Ring, we don't have a speaker, so the group talks together. We, we talk as a group um, for the whole hour. And then, for example, Smart Recovery, they have a time to- and then they talk. And so that's what I would look at. I would look at the philosophy, but I would also look at the meeting format. And whichever ones look appealing, try you know, try out a couple different meetings and see. The the other thing is you can do more than one. You don't have to make an exclusive commitment to any of them. You can mix and match the way I did. And today we would call that a hybrid plan or a patchwork plan.
1: Um. <clears throat> I, I,
0: let me try to be a little more specific, if I may. You name six groups, or something like that. Uh, just the first thing you would type in would say recovery groups. Uh, where, where would you go to get the list? That's that's really what I'm. I'm yeah,
2: I would do um, peer support groups for addiction. Would would should get you a list. You can go on to the websites like SAMHSA. S A M H S A. dot gov has a list of peer support groups as well. Um, or and if you if you're only finding 12 steps, then I would type in peer support alternatives to 12 steps, and I'm sure you would find a list of the other groups. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, how many do you find? Do you have people? Well, certainly since publication of your book, but uh, do you have people contacting you all the time asking how you did it and what, how, did, what did you do and how do you go about it?
2: Well, I will say that, you know, I, I really thought about what I wanted the book to include. And 30% of my book is recovery, as you know. It's the first three years. And I talk about how I built that, you know, personal plan, but also the interplay of the trauma and the substance recovery. But, yes, people do contact me. And if any of your listeners want to, you can message me through my website, which is uh, junkytojudge.com, And I answer I answer every message that I get. I'm always trying to be as good of a resource as as I can. That's one of, one of my goals right now is really, you know, to be of service at this point in my life. I'm retired and sort of sharing information and helping where I can is really what I do now. Uh,
0: We talked once earlier this summer, you mentioned you try to spend about an hour, stop me if I'm wrong, but I think you said you spend about an hour each day uh, reading, trying to learn, trying to understand more about addiction and recovery. Is that accurate?
2: That's true. I do spend about an hour a day. I mean, the good news is in the last 10 years, there's been a lot more studies, and so there are studies that come out, you know, several times a week. There's a new study that's released, and I'm on email list to get those, but I also read articles, opinion pieces, um, you know, uh, whatever's in the media so I know what's going on. I read about uh Substance use disorder, recovery, but also harm reduction and di- just different ideas so that I can keep informed and share useful information from that, po- from that vantage point.
0: Uh, I read an article, an opinion piece by Maya Solovitz. She writes occasionally uh, opinion pieces for the New York Times. Yes. I read her most recent one, and then I started to look at the comments, uh, the responses, and there were 500 and some reader responses and I was horrified by the hostility and the reader responses. Do you, do you get any hostility or, 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 it's, it's stigma is alive and well. That's what I'm trying to say.
2: Yeah, and I have had opinion pieces published as well, the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, and other places. Um, they're on my website if anyone's interested. But I, at first I read the comments because I thought it would be a substantive discussion of the issue because I, don't, I know not everyone will agree with me, and that's okay, but the comments too often devolve into personal nastiness, and so they're not as um, as useful as I had hoped. Um, and, yeah, I do occasionally get comments through my, uh, through my message Uh, message, you know, option on my website, but definitely there were comments that were upset that I did my recovery a different way or that I had been, uh, you know, shot meth and then later I became a judge. I mean, it was 20 years later, but apparently this shouldn't be allowed. Um, And so you just have to sort of take that with a grain of salt. Um, but I definitely, the, the comments I was most interested in were the substantive comments. You know, what, what, is, the, what is the other opinion? What is the counter argument to what I said? Those comments I'm very interested in because I want to understand everyone's perspective.
0: Yes. Well, there's still a lot of people that, we've still got a lot, of, lot to teach and a lot to learn.
2: That's true. And then part of the reason I do talk now is because, you know, I'm a, I'm retired. I do have that judge title that gets me a little bit of um, traction as far as people may listen to me a little more easily um, because there is a lot of stigma. And people do have valid concerns about professional ramifications if they come out publicly. And so I feel like I'm sort of standing in the shoes of others who aren't able to speak. And I'm hoping that the fact that I could go from someone who shot meth to to Berkeley Law and eventually become a judge is a sign of hope, but also a sign that who we are in the middle of our substance use disorder is not who we're going to be in our recovery. And that maybe if people understood that better, they might sympathize more, empathize more, and offer more help.
0: That's a great way to end our discussion. I'm afraid we're short on time. That's all the time we have for the Kingfisher Project tonight. I'm your host, Bill Williams. We've been talking with Mary Beth O'Connor, author of From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Go out and buy a copy, by the way. In the meantime, join us right here on Radio Catskill at 6 o'clock on the first Tuesday of each month for more from the Kingfisher Project, Information Against Addiction. Mary Beth, thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it.
1: You've been listening to the Kingfisher Project right here on Radio Catskill. We're public radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll check in with Leah Mayo, get the latest headlines for our listening hour for our listening area from the River Reporter. It is River Reporter's local news roundup. That'll be tomorrow. And uh before that at 10 a.m., don't miss the news Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. on Radio Chatskill. Live Local Conversations coming to you every morning at 10. Tim will be in tomorrow morning to do it all over again. Before that, of course, we've got Mr. Kusar Grace in for the Music Emporium. Two hours of phenomenal music coming up at 7. And before all of that, stay right where you are for The Daily, right here on Radio Catskill.
2: Support comes from Jeff Bank, Sullivan County's community bank, celebrating 110 years of service this year offering deposit and loan products for all your banking needs member fdic and an equal housing lender national mortgage licensing system and registry identification number 405318 jeff bank still banking strong and support comes from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org to be truly informed about world events you need as many viewpoints as possible so every weekday morning at nine on Radio Catskill, news Hour from the BBC brings you the most important international news stories. With reports from around the globe, from the places where the stories are happening, and expert analysis from guests, NewsHour helps you understand a complex world. Stay informed with NewsHour from the BBC, weekday mornings at nine on Radio Catskill.
1: This week on This American Life,
2: Yes, Jesse. Hi.
1: we tell the story of one phone call to a very unusual hotline.
2: You got your door unlocked? Um, let me check. Oh, hold on. Yeah, it's unlocked now. Okay. Are you you're by yourself in your home, in your apartment? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: One call, and I'll change the lives of three different people this week.
2: Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill.
1: We've only got another half hour left to this uh, heat advisory for uh, today, but there will be another one tomorrow because it's going to be hot again tomorrow. Before that, overnight low down to about 65 tonight. It'll be partly cloudy. Tomorrow, uh, near record highs once again in the mid-80s, and there will be another heat advisory going from noon until 7 tomorrow. And then on Thursday, hot again with a chance of uh, strong to severe thunderstorms. This is Radio Cass-